In his classic book on prayer, Richard Foster writes, if we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it's in our power to give them, and that will cause us to pray. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them, and that will cause us to pray. There's something world-changing that happens when God's people see a desperate need, look it in the face, and believe that God has the power to do something about it. John White was a 20th century professor of psychiatry who for a time served as the national chairman, um, uh, the student chairman for British InterVarsity. And he was the author of dozens of Christian books, including an excellent one on the book of Nehemiah. And White tells a personal story in this book about attending a prayer meeting where he learns about uh, a missionary in Manila who's suffering from spinal tuberculosis. And it's really bad. She, she's actually at this point in a full body cast. And John White recalls that unexpectedly, when he heard about the plight of this total stranger, he was not only profoundly shaken, but found himself virtually insisting that God would heal her. He writes, my prayer was remarkable in that I did not believe such healing was possible. And so I was astounded both by the content and the urgency of my own prayer. I suppose you could say that the Holy Spirit was allowing me to see two realities. The need of the young missionary and God's power to do something that my theology and medical experience told me was impossible. And he concludes, to the astonishment of her physician, this woman in the Philippines was miraculously healed that same day and soon after became my wife. <laughs> now I'm starting to sound like a prosperity preacher here. <laughs> but there's something world changing that happens when God's people see a desperate need and believe that God has the power to do something about it. And furthermore, let me add, when we make ourselves available to be a part of the solution, whether through prayer or through action, amen? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells the story about two men who refuse to let themselves see the desperate need or be a part of the solution. Jesus says in Luke 10.30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. He goes on to tell of a priest who refuses to see the man. In fact, he passed by on the other side of the road. Verse 31. Next, a Levite passes by and does the same. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed and came to where the battered man was, saw him. Can you say, saw him? Jesus says this in verse 33, and it says he had compassion on him. And what's more, he makes himself available, does he not? His own animal, his own time, his own money. He makes himself available to God as part of the solution. This morning, we start a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And as we'll see, Nehemiah is that kind of man. He's like John White, like the Good Samaritan, the kind of man who's willing to look a problem square in the face, allow himself to feel deeply the desperate need to believe that God can do something about it and to make himself available as part of the solution.
because Nehemiah is a man of action. But first and always, a man of faith. He's a man of competent planning, but first and always, a man of prayer. We don't usually hear much preaching out of the book that bears his name, but one commentator suggests that Nehemiah may just be the second most important leader in the Old Testament, behind only Moses. Why? Because through Moses, the Lord gathered an enslaved people. But through Nehemiah, the Lord regathered an exiled people. In 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, leveled the temple, and dragged the Jewish people out of the promised land in chains. The book of Nehemiah tells the story of what happened 150 years after that, later in the exile, and how this one man galvanized the Jewish people to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and reestablish their national identity. Would you please turn there with me to Nehemiah chapter 1? It's on page 398 of your pew Bible. 398. Verse 1 begins, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So Nehemiah, whose name means Yahweh has comforted, is the central human figure of the story. In fact, large portions of the book are taken from his personal memoirs or journals. So while Nehemiah was not the final editor or compiler of Ezra Nehemiah, which actually form one book in the Hebrew Bible, he is indeed a primary author. And through Nehemiah's memoirs, we're given this unique window in his motivations at the time. And I think it's really, um, man, I, I hope you guys will pick up the book of Nehemiah and just read it on your own. I think it's these first person sections that really give the book of Nehemiah that sort of snap, crackle, pop, that, that relatability, uh, even though it describes events that happened nearly two and a half millennia ago. And since Nehemiah is a man who sees, who's not afraid of the desperate need, right? He, he makes inquiries to his friends. So you'll see that as we read on here in verse 1. Nehemiah says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So Nehemiah is hanging out in the comfy winter palace of Artaxerxes, although he hasn't yet told us what he's doing there, right? And some of his brothers or Jewish kindred come passing through. And Nehemiah makes inquiries. He says, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, this is the first sermon uh, in a multi-week series, so we need to zoom out a bit to see the context and why this report from these Jewish brethren is such a big deal to Nehemiah. The year is 445 BC, and the Persian Empire has long since defeated the Babylonians. So at this point, the Jews are captives of their captors' captors. Got that? All right. Uh, but the Persians were not altogether like the Babylonians. Due to their policies of, of relative religious tolerance, the Jews had already been given permission to rebuild the temple, uh, a story that's told in the book of Ezra and in fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah. But politically speaking, I think we could 
say there, there's a difference between allowing your subjects to rebuild a temple, especially if they're willing to pray for you, um, or, or allowing them to rebuild a fortified city in the midst of your empire. Right? You see that difference? On a pure, purely human level, the odds of the Jews reestablishing their national identity are massively stacked against them. They remain a subjugated people with few rights, mostly scattered, right? Few resources, no military protection, and the walls of Jerusalem lie in rubble. In essence, if this wall was not restored, if this wall was not rebuilt, there is no second temple period of Judaism. The Judaism that was preserved until the day of Jesus simply would not have existed. And apart from the stuff about Jesus, this is essentially what Hanani and the others report to Nehemiah at the beginning of this book. And this news is crushing to Nehemiah. Don't ask me why. Because he's living in relative luxury in the Persian city of Susa in modern day Iran. He was born in exile. He probably himself has never lived in the promised land for one day. He grew up he, he came up in the Persian ranks, no doubt, through personal qualities like hard work and intelligence and attention to detail. Certainly not through family connections, right? And like the priest and Levite in, in Jesus' parable, he could have just minded his own business, right? And, and sort of walked on the other side of the road, so to speak, when it comes to Jerusalem. But because of his walk with God, can we say that together? Because of his walk with God, Amen. His heart broke for the things that broke God's heart. He says in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now notice Nehemiah doesn't move on from the heavy news too quickly, right? He lingers in fasting and prayer for days. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn. And unlike our own tendencies towards self-medication and instant gratification, Nehemiah isn't afraid to enter into mourning. If only the people of God today could learn this principle from Nehemiah when it comes to things like social media. If only we would pray more and post less. Often I think we view prayer today as something less real. Like a kind of like phantom action devoid of real tangible love. So we rush in to do the real work, the important work of posting our own opinions. Brothers and sisters, will we allow God's word to teach us that we have it backwards? Nehemiah shows us that prayer is the beginning of true impact. Meanwhile, social media, more often than not, is the stuff of phantoms. It's the arena of fretting, of self-justification, of self presentation of increased depression. Meanwhile, prayer is the time-tested arena of the saints, of the world changers. In the, world, in the words of Walter Wink, history belongs to the intercessors. And Nehemiah knew that well, amen? As we get to verses 5 through 11, we reach the heart of Nehemiah chapter 1, which is this beautiful, reverent, biblically informed prayer. One of the finest examples of prayer in all of Scripture. 
Prayer is a major theme in the book of Nehemiah. Nine times he's recorded praying, and most of them are very brief, but here we get a window into his heart and faith, don't we? Like the rest of chapter one, this prayer is recorded by Nehemiah's own pen, and it's possible that he's giving like more of a summary of the prayer than a remembrance of the specific sentences he uttered on that occasion. But either way, I want to take the rest of this time, our time this morning learning what we can from Nehemiah about prayer. Notice in verse 5 that he begins, not with a request. You notice that? But by directly addressing God and with a faith-filled acknowledgement of who God is. He prays, O Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Guys, deep prayer always starts with who God is. This week, I asked one of the incarnation kids if the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer reminds them of any other prayer in Scripture that they know, and they answered right away, yeah, it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. Can I tell you guys a secret that the Holy Spirit has taught me about prayer? Sincerely, from the heart. If you have trouble connecting with God in prayer, like I did in my early years as a Christian, Try this. Begin with the Lord's Prayer. Sit down and pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. And slow down and linger longer on that first part. On the address. And don't move on until your faith is actually engaged. Wait until God, by his grace, has given your heart just a glimpse just a mustard seed kind of glimpse of who he is. Amen? If you have 20 minutes to pray, take five minutes or even 10 minutes on this one point if need be. Because if you're anything like me, you can go along praying for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you're just on spiritual autopilot, right? And you're just kind of going through a kind of a mental to-do list while you're kneeling or while you're sitting, right? And you're, you're praying as if there's no such thing as God as if God doesn't really exist, as if this isn't an interaction that's happening right now by faith. Slow down. Ask God for help to believe that he's truly present. The Almighty Father, the Ancient of Days, ask to see him high and lifted up. Because if you just get a little glimpse, the rest of the prayer flows naturally, doesn't it? I mean, we naturally confess our sins if we get a glimpse of who God is. We get a glimpse of how holy his name is. We naturally ask for his aid. We naturally subvert our own will to his. As for Nehemiah, his, requ his requests flow from who God is and what God has done. After acknowledging the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, he then makes an initial request. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Now, if you notice, this is actually a very similar structure that our liturgical colleagues have. The collective prayers of the church usually start with who God is, with what God has done, and then move on from that basis to a specific request. In fact, the actual request flows from the attribute of God that we're acknowledging. So consider, for example, the collect for purity that we pray every Sunday to prepare our hearts for worship. It starts, Almighty God, there's the address, 
to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. So this is the truth about who God is, right? And essentially we're saying, you know everything, God. Nothing is hidden from you. So on that basis, we make a related request. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. The thoughts that you see as plain as day, God. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. The request is rooted in God's nature. Now, I want to get back to Nehemiah because verses 6 through 9, uh, we really get a window into the biblical framework, the kind of tape that's playing in the background of Nehemiah's head as he's praying. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. He continues, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Now, there are two crucial features to notice in these verses. First, that Nehemiah not only confesses his own sins, but he also identifies with the sins of his father's house. And what's more, he confesses the sins of the people of Israel. Now, I think you probably know that there's great controversy in our day about this kind of group identification and whether it's appropriate for Christians. But it's clear in Scripture, is it not? Whether in Nehemiah or in the prophets or in our Savior Jesus Christ, who when he was baptized, though he was without sin, he said it was to fulfill all righteousness. He identified with sinful humanity. Amen? Now, God often deals with people corporately, not just individually in Scripture. Now, some will say, does that mean that I have to identify if I'm a white man with the sins of all white people because I'm white? Now, speak personally, this is a complicated question. My, my, my own great-grandfathers were people who had recently come from French Canada or fresh off the boat from Ireland. I mean, my great-grandfather still spoke with an Irish accent. He wasn't here when a lot of stuff was going down. So, so what do I do with that? And what about the passage like Ezekiel 18, where God makes it clear that he doesn't punish people for the sins of their fathers? What do we do about that? Now, I don't claim to have all the answers, but biblically, it seems to me, you guys with me? That while ethnic or national identity has some measure of importance, in fact, we bring that as an offering to the Lord in the book of Revelation, our greater sense of communal identity in the new covenant is supposed to come from being members of God's people. In fact, even in Nehemiah 1, that's the primary angle for which he's identifying with his people. Look at verses 10 and 11. And especially in the new covenant, our primary tribe, if you want to call it that, is God's multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic church. We are the one people of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, don't make me start a sermon series on the book of Ephesians in the middle of our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. So, 
if there's still a place, a place for corporate confession, and I think there is, it should start with confession of the historic sins of the church. And there's plenty to confess, amen? And then maybe we confess the sins of our ethnic group. You know, we, the, the, hey, lay it all before the Lord, guys. Amen? Even if sometimes we're confessing the sins of those who might have been Christian in name only, we don't know. We're not the judge. God knows, right? And we're sinners ourselves. So we confess the sins of the people of God. And if there's a place for celebrating, even in some of these same issues we grieve, it's the people of God who are the heroes. Amen? The people of God who found a way forward. Now, the second thing to notice from this section is that Nehemiah prays like a man who knows the scriptures. Amen? He, he prays like a man who knows the promises of God. God had promised Israel that disobedience would lead to exile, but repentance would lead to restoration. Amen? In Leviticus 26, 33 and elsewhere, God warned them, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Now, Nehemiah seems to know, I'm living in those days. See, we, we want to live in the days of prophecy. You don't want to live in the days of the fulfillment of that prophecy. Amen? But at the same time, in Leviticus 26, the same chapter, verses 42 through 43, God also promises, quote, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and skipping forward, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then God says this. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. These are the promises of God. And do you think that maybe Nehemiah might have these in mind when he's praying this prayer here in Nehemiah chapter 1? I mean, his prayer is saturated with these promises, isn't it? And since Nehemiah knows the scriptures, he's able to invoke the promises of God, right? He's able to ask God to, to make good on these promises in his own day. One person said that Nehemiah is like a lawyer building a case for God to rescue them based upon the evidence of his word. And that's not far from the truth, is it? God loves when we exercise that kind of faith, guys, because it, it, we're taking his word seriously. When we pray his promises back to him and base our requests on things that he's revealed about himself and how he's going to act in history, oh, God loves that, guys. Now, I said that Nehemiah's prayer is the meat and potatoes of chapter 1, and that's true, but this chapter also has a, has a kind of a twist ending, right? A cliffhanger ending. For Hebrew narrative, the sense of drama comes not just from the information that is given, but from the information that is strategically withheld. So we learned early on that Nehemiah was in Susa, but we don't know what his business is there. We learned that he had very little contact with Jerusalem, but we don't know why. And in these last verses in chapter 1, he gives us some information that will be vital to the story going forward. Do any of you like to play poker? Have you ever played Texas Hold'em? Are any of you willing to admit that in church? <laughs> all right. We, we you know, pray, play for five bucks, all right? Uh, it's, it's basically a variation of seven-card poker where you get most of your cards on the front end, but then the last two cards are flipped one at a time, okay? 
And the last card is called the river. And as anyone who's ever played the game can tell you, that last card is oftentimes the game changer. So if you stayed in the game that long, you better hang around for the river because it just might be the thing that changes the game for you. And here at the end of Nehemiah, he plays the river card, right? He plays the game changer. In fact, his prayer finds his fulfillment in his circumstances and in his availability to God to be a part of the answer to his own prayers. Amen. He says in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He views himself as the servant of God. Amen. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. In the sight of what man? Nehemiah tells us, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, as I said to the kids, sometimes God wants us to be part of the answer to our own prayers, and sometimes it's obvious, right? Now, that might seem obvious to us, but I don't know if it was immediately obvious to Nehemiah, right? It's like Esther, when she has to appeal to the king for the sake of her own people, very similar circumstance, but to do so, he has to risk his own neck, and we'll hear more about that next week. But for this morning, I want to close with the observation that Nehemiah only arrives at this plan. He only has the courage. He is only successful because he starts with prayer. He doesn't rush into action without God, guys. In fact, we'll find out in chapter 2 that he doesn't take direct action for four months. And so Nehemiah's plan is forged in the kiln of prayer. And that's why God grants him success. There are millions of things he could have tried to do on his own strength. But God knows the right lever to pull, the right button to push, to actually impact the circumstances. So we can run around like chickens with our head cut off when we look at the suffering of the world, but it's God who will direct our steps and give us success so that we can actually make an impact. Amen? John White comments on these four months of prayer, pointing out that it may be that a hundred earnest requests collect and wither on Nehemiah's lips before he has the courage to utter the one request that God had been waiting for him to utter. He knows well the danger he runs as cupbearer if he's to ask the king to send him to Jerusalem. Yet finally the words come. The king's favor is all he asks. It's all he asks in his prayer. White goes on to say, often we pray fussily about a thousand details. Scripture knows nothing of such a catalog of prayers. Rather, quote, battles hinge on small but critical factors. The destruction of a bridge, the holding of a farm. A skilled general is one who knows what the key to the battle is, and the Holy Spirit is such a general. Guys, there's so much going on in the world today, is there not? We've been praying for Afghanistan Right? We've been praying for the pandemic. We've been praying for racial justice. And don't we just want to zoom to our social media page and say, I'm going to post my opinions on this because that's what the world needs. Brothers and sisters, might I suggest that we go to the Lord in prayer? That we ask him, what is your plan? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
but with the Lord, guys. Oh, when the Lord Jesus breathes on us and says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Mm. Heaven and earth cannot withstand. The gates of hell will not stand when the saints of God are marching in the prayer-soaked actions that God directs. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.